Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. As I've said to you, we're not going through the book of Romans, which is a joke. We are going through the book of Romans, but I don't want to act as if I'm climbing Mount you know, Kilimanjaro or Himalayas or something, Mount, what do they call it? Everest, yeah, Everest. That's the word I was looking for. Because every pastor is intimidated by preaching in Romans. But <clears throat> some of you who are visiting today, and you won't know that when I cut the grass, and I usually spend a number of hours every week cutting grass for our neighborhood, um, I always listen to Romans in my ears. And it's gotten to the point where I just want to preach Romans because it's so helpful to me, and I hope it will be helpful to you. So this week we come to uh, Romans chapter 1, verses 16 to 23. This is the Word of God, and is eternally true. And I'm only going to read through verse 17. I was supposed to get through verse 23. But I'll tell you why I'm not going to as soon as we get done reading this. Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. This is the word of the Lord. Now, you know this text begins with the preposition for, for I am not ashamed. That preposition points backwards, and so you should wonder, why does he say, for I'm not ashamed? Well, if you look backwards, you'll see that what he just got done saying, verse 15, is so, for my part, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. So the Apostle Paul is eager to preach to the church in Rome, that's the you, the men and women that he is writing to, and note the word also. I am eager to preach the gospel to you also, okay? If God allows him to travel to Rome as he wishes, the Apostle Paul will do in Rome precisely what he has done across the Roman Empire. He was going to preach the gospel. This is the reason that he breaks out into this exclamation he says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. He goes around preaching it, and he wants everybody to know he's not ashamed of the gospel. Now, why do you say I'm not afraid of the dark? It's because you're afraid of the dark. So why is the Apostle Paul saying, for I am not ashamed of the gospel? Well, okay, okay, because he's ashamed of the gospel. And you say, well, no, he just said he isn't ashamed of the gospel. And I say, okay, so that means you're not ashamed of the gospel, right? The gospel's just, you wear it easy, you know? It's like a favorite hat. 
You know, the gospel is just glory and hope and salvation and everything good. Right? I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And if we're not ashamed of the gospel, how come it is that we find it so, so hard to ever mention it outside of church on Sunday morning? Well, listen, the gospel is a scandal to every man who's ever lived, except Jesus. The gospel is stupidity, and the gospel is weakness. And all of us are ashamed of the gospel, because none of us want to be weak. And so we have real trouble living with God and what he does. I've told this story before. I don't think I'd ever realized the degree to which, you know, I had read Corinthians where it says that the cross is foolishness and weakness, you know. But I was over in London, and there were... There, was a bunch of, there were a bunch of people at Hyde Park who were preaching against the U.S. They hated the U.S. The, 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 the degree of their hatred was mind-boggling. You could cut it with a knife. And the bobbies, the cops were there in force because it was just razor-edge tents. And one of these guys was making a remark about the United States. And you know... Even in me, even old hippie me, you know, there was something in me that did not want men trashing my country over in London, you know? I just didn't like it. And so I said, actually, that's not true. They had said something that was just stupid. You know, it's what foreigners believe about America. And there's a lot of bad to believe about America, but that particular thing they got wrong. So I spoke up and I said, well, that's not true. And immediately, everybody there is like, Oh, you're American. The minute I opened my mouth, they knew I was from the United States, right? And so these two Muslims, because a lot of the climate was Muslim, Islamic, and these two Muslims came over to me, and they were in my face. You're American. You're this. You're that. You're the other thing. And you know what they said that I just was fascinated with? Oh, so you serve a God that's so weak that he can't keep himself from being killed on a cross. Some God you have. That's absolutely what they said. And my hair stood on end because that is the power of God. Nobody could ever come up with a method of salvation for us that it would take God dying righteously on the cross for us to be saved. Other than God, it is, can I say the word, wacko! That method of salvation for us is wacko. Okay? No, No professor at IU would write that one up. Even Eric Rasmussen. He couldn't come up with that. And the Apostle Paul says what? So here you have the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire made the United States look pathetic. And he wants to go to the capital of Rome. And he wants to go so he can preach the gospel there as he has also preached it across the Roman Empire. And thinking about going there and preaching the gospel to them, 
he lets out this exclamation, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. Well, why is he saying that? Because the only way the Apostle Paul could continue to do the things he did is by glorying in the gospel of Jesus. He gloried in it. You know, um, there's truth in this that we must understand. You know, some of you, that we have a special needs granddaughter named Mary Louise, right? And she has been extremely difficult. Um, For a couple years, Mary Lee uh, spent a couple nights a week sleeping with her so her mother and dad could get some rest. And, you know, she doesn't walk the way other kids walk. She has to be tube-fed. Um, and so how do you deal with a child like this? How do you deal with her? Some of you just look at her and say, well, <laughs> that's not my baby. Some of you look at her and you say, that's the cross of Jesus Christ. In our weakness, he is made strong. But nobody just looks at her and says, hmm. (laughs) Right? You don't know why I'm laughing. It's probably because I'm disturbed. (laughs) But, I mean, you know, you look at Lexi, you don't say, hmm. You know, you look at Bob, you don't say, hmm. You either repudiate it and reject it, or what? You embrace it. And I was saying to Mary Lee last night that she was telling me about, she was telling me about a woman who, who, who at a church of ours in the past, who said she had a special needs child, and she said, I do not thank God for, the, for that child. And I was just thinking, you know, I actually do thank God for Mary Louise. Why? Well, (laughs) Mary Louise is extremely helpful to me personally. Do you all understand? Because Mary Louise leaves no question in my mind about who I am and who my daughter Hannah is and my son Lucas and just everybody. And we do one of two things. We either distance ourselves or we love. But there's nothing in between because it's God. And we can't be indifferent to the acts of God in this world. And there are, there are the, only those two things. We either receive from God the suffering he has put in our lives as his kindness, as his love, as his mercy, or we, we can still act like we're Christian, go to church, come up front, be welcomed as members, and be as hard and tough as nails inside. Are you with me? And, you know, you look at the sins that you have to struggle with in your life. And what we tend to do with our sins is we, we tend to try to use them to establish a pecking order between us and other people. 
Well, yeah, you know, I, I, you know, I have a, I have a problem with lying, but he's a proud jerk. You know, I, I have a problem with depression, but that stupid idiot never stops being happy. <laughs> you know, I have a problem with drinking, but, but he uses, you know, Prozac. You know, and so we use our sins to establish this pecking order, but what God gives us our sins for, and I'm not saying that God is the one who tempts us, but you have to realize when it says in a few verses later, we haven't gotten there yet, but when it says God gave them over, God does actually give us over to certain sins, right? He's not the author of sin, all right? And so what we see is that when we look at our sins, those sins are the sins that are perfectly suited to drive us to God. Mary Louise is the weakness that's perfectly suited to drive me to God. Do you understand this? God is the steward of our suffering. And so here's the Apostle Paul. I am not ashamed of this dude. Was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was a Jew. He studied under Gamaliel. He was persecuting the church. And then God slays him. God takes away his ability to see. God reduces him to being led around because he can't see by the very Christians he was setting out to kill. And it's humiliating. It's awful. And everybody's saying, yeah, yeah, the one that formerly persecuted them. Oh, yeah, yeah, he's a good Christian now. And And so what does the Apostle Paul do? The Apostle Paul has no choice. He goes around and he preaches the gospel. And he preaches the gospel because God showed him that all his righteousness was worthless. God slayed him. God broke him. And so from that point on, his brokenness, I I can't believe I'm saying it. (laughs) You know how all these pastors go around talking about how broken they are? And I hate it. I absolutely hate it. Because pastors are supposed to give you strength. Okay? But the Apostle Paul went around proclaiming that he was broken and sinful and had nothing to brag about. He said, all that stuff that I used to glory and I now count as excrement. And, and you all, right, you, you do know what that word means, right? Okay, it's not a nice word, it stinks. And so the Apostle Paul is faced with the sophistication of the Roman Empire, all the wealth of Washington, D.C., all the sophistication of Manhattan. And he's going to go there and preach. And this is what he wants to do. To whom was he preaching? Well, you know that of the first 14 emperors, or the first emperors in the B.C., the common era. Do you know that of the first 14 of them, I think it was, only one of them only had sex with the opposite sex? Are you with me? In other words, they were all gay. All the emperors. You know, we look back at Paul and we think, well, you know, they lived in a different world. No, 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 no. They lived in our world. The Apostle Paul, when he said it's better to marry than to burn, knew precisely what temptations you face. 
okay? That was their world. And he says this. He looks behind him. He realizes everything he's left behind. But then he thinks about Jesus, who did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself humble and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of Nero. But that's not what it says. It says was made in the likeness of man. And then he kept humbling himself. And the Apostle Paul's like, hey, you know, I can't wait to get to Rome. I want to preach in Rome. Yeah, yeah, Donald Trump's there. Nero's there. But I can't wait. And then out comes this exclamation. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm not ashamed. I'm not ashamed. Why? Well, because, well, he actually says, should I read it? He says he's not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ for, this is the reason, for it, that being the gospel, is the power of God. Now, I forget how to pronounce the guy's name, but you know this guy that's over in North Korea? I can't remember his name. Pong Yong, or is that the city? or Kim Jong-un. Did I do it okay? Okay, Kim Jong-un. You know, this guy says he's got, he's got a big gun, right? And Donald Trump responds by saying, I have a big gun too. And really, what difference is that? Is there between that and the guy that cuts his grass on a John Deere little piddly lawnmower and thinks he's driving a, a John Deere tractor? <laughs> you know? What difference is there between King Jong un and Donald Trump and the guy that 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 lifts weights? Huh? The guy that drives a muscle car. Huh? All these men think that they have power. The man who has ten children. Oh, he has power. Especially if they're all boys. The man who has a church of 10,000 or a church of 400 or 200. That's better than the guy with a church of 100, you know. The gospel is not American power, and the gospel is not my power. It's not your power. And everybody who thinks they have power does not know God. Okay? The gospel is the power of God. And how powerful is God? Well, he better be unbelievably powerful because there is no end to my pride and sin. And there ain't no way that I can be saved unless God is omnipotent. What else is going to get through to me? I don't have any hope in myself. None. He's not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God. God's not pumping weights. God doesn't want a muscle car. There was no moment in history that was more powerful than that moment where the Son of God himself 
was hanging on the cross outside the city, okay, and they're ashamed of that. At the crossroads, they're ashamed of that, naked, bleeding, and dying. And everybody around him is mocking him. He, oh, he trusts in God. Let God deliver him. And there the Son of God submitted himself to that. He did not come down, but he bore the shame even of the cross. Unbelievable power. And therefore what? Therefore God has highly exalted him and has given him a name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus every single knee will bow and every tongue confess he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the reason that I keep saying to us, our worship must be loud because this is the God we serve. We must have zeal in worship. We must make fools of ourselves in worship because we are worshiping that Jesus. For it is the power of God for what? For salvation, for being saved. What is the purpose of God's power? It is his power for salvation. God uses his omnipotence to save. It's not just the love and the grace and the mercy of God that we need to be saved. Did you hear me? It is not just the love and mercy and grace of God that we need to be saved. That's not sufficient. We need the power of God. He must raise us from the death we live in our trespasses and sin. What other than the power of God could ever bust us loose from our sinful hearts and our sinful affections and from the lust of our flesh and the lust of our eyes and the pride of life? Is there anything else you have as a solution? You know, is there some behavioral mod modification you think will handle it? You know? Is there a good book I can read? Good conference I can go to? Good program I can work? No, no, there's none. Only God. Only God. And what God does to us is God shoves our nose in our own offal to the point where we make unconditional surrender. And this is always God's way with us. There is no way to be saved until we absolutely despair of ourselves. And what causes that? Only the power of God. There is nothing else that can make a man despair of himself. It's the power of God. It's the only thing. It is the power of God. Wait, one other thing. For salvation to everyone who believes. Um... Notice that it does not say some who believe. It says everyone who believes. Notice also that it doesn't say a few who believe, although it is true that relatively speaking, only a few do believe. Notice it doesn't say to every other person who believes, 
count off by twos. Here we have the explicit promise of God that his salvation comes to everyone who believes. Everyone. And so the question is, do you believe? You know, the question is not, are you in church? The question is, do you believe? This belief is not a mere intellectual assent. It's not agreeing to a set of did it, did it, did it, did it, did it. That's not belief. You know, the guy that's drowning in the water and sees a life preserver thrown to him does not recount to you the properties of the life preserver and how long the rope is and whether it will float. What he does is he, he clings to it. He clings to that, flo- to that life preserver so much that if you ever take life-saving, I don't know, maybe they don't teach this anymore, but back when I took it at camp, what they said to you is, you're often going to have people who are drowning and they're going to try to take you under. And if they're trying to take you under, you know what you have to do? I remember them saying this. What you have to do is punch them until you knock them out. Because otherwise you'll both die. (laughs) And so belief is whole hog. Nothing reserved, nothing held back. Belief is clinging to God despite, you remember Christian? You know, he leaves his family he, he just can't bear his sin. This is in Pilgrim's He puts his hands over his head. He says, life, life, eternal. And they're all calling, come on back, Christian, you know. Come on back. Don't leave your family. Don't leave your, life, life, eternal life. That's belief. It's just, you can't look back. And that's, again, the Apostle Paul saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So do you believe? Or are you ashamed of the gospel? Honestly, are you ashamed of the gospel? And listen, if you say, no, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God to believe, I say, well, where did you hear that one? And you say, well, I think it's in Romans. And I say, so are you ashamed of the gospel? And you say, no, the apostle Paul wasn't ashamed, and I'm not ashamed. And I say, oh, things are simple for you, aren't they? Are you ashamed of the gospel? And every single person here should say, yes, I am ashamed of the gospel. Because we are. But why? And you say, why not? I say, okay, if you were, why would you be? And you say, well, I don't know, maybe. And I say, okay, open that up for me a little, you know. Well, maybe because it's, it's, it doesn't have anything to do with me. And it's like, yeah, it does, actually. He says, whoever believes. (laughs) You know, so you're the whoever. Well, yeah, I know, but you know what I mean. I mean, I can't contribute to it in any way. You know, know, I'm going to stop drinking for a year, and after a year, I'll go and see if Jesus will have me. It's like, okay, dude, you'll never come. You have to come in your drinking. Well, I'm proud, and so I'm going to get married so I have a wife who humbles me. And then after a year of marriage to a woman who humbles me every time I wake up and every time I go to sleep, and you, you, right? Right? 
right? There's a joke we men tell, and the joke is if a man speaks in the woods and there's nobody there to hear him, there's no woman there to hear him, is he still wrong? So I'm going to get married. I'm going to have a wife who improves me. And then after a year, my pride won't be so intense. And then maybe Jesus will take me. Well, I'm going to do, I'm going to do six months of daily mass. I'm going to light candles. I'm going to go on pilgrimage. I'm going to, uh, I'm going to memorize. I'm finally going to go through one year with McChain's Bible reading program. And I'm going to finish the Bible before the... And we have all this stuff that we want to impress God with. And the reason we want to impress God is not because we think that God is impressed. The reason we want to impress God is that we're all proud. And all of us want to feel like we're bringing something to God. Because our self-image isn't helped by it being all of grace and all of the power of God. We want it to be a little bit of our power. We want to feel like we've made a contribution. Well, here's your contribution. Your contribution is that you can't do nothing. You just can't. And you say, well, the Bible tells me to do a lot of things. Yeah, the gospel is the power of God. And in God's power, you are made able to start saying no to all the sins of your life. And listen, that's the only thing that keeps me going as a pastor is that I get to listen to people tell me how God is causing them to repent of this and that and the other sin. The greatest joys to pastors are when people come in their office and confess their sin. How many of you have confessed your sins to the pastors of this church? Raise your hand real high. Okay, do you see this? Look, the, the gospel is shameful to every last ounce of pride that there is in us. But when we humble ourselves, and when we, we simply cling to God, we believe, then we are saved. And listen, there is nothing that feels better than being done with my effort to contribute to God's plan. The sweetest time in a Christian's life is when he forgets himself. Can you testify to me that that's right? How often are you able to forget yourself? You know, I find that I, I put up a, a tweet this week. My father and uh, Hudson Armitage were talking. He lived up the street from us, and he was the president of Wheaton College, and Hud was 6'6", six, 6'5", six, six, real tall man. And Hudson was talking to dad, and they were both in their 60s, and Hudson said to dad, you know, you, you know you're getting old when you lean over and you wonder, isn't there something else I can do while I'm down here? <laughs> you know? And my dad said, no, you know you're getting old when you lean over and you wonder, isn't there, what, what on earth, why was I leaning over? You just forget why you're even leaning over. Well, one of the beautiful things about getting older is that you forget yourself, you know, if I were to give one gift to teenage girls and boys, you know what I'd give it? I'd give them the gift to just for a split second, forget yourself. <laughs> just a split second, because you'd be so happy. Right? Oh, what a burden self-knowledge and self-pride and all that stuff is. And I'm convinced that when we get to heaven, we just won't think about ourselves. You know, it says that in heaven the sun 
is God's Son, Jesus Christ, that there's no need for the Son and for light because Jesus gives the light. Well, I think also in heaven, there's no need for personhood. I mean, we'll still be persons. We'll recognize each other and we'll have our identities, but we'll be able to forget them because Jesus will be our joy. Yes, it is hard to forget ourselves and to not want to make a contribution and to simply cling to Christ. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And then this, and then this obnoxious thing. Uh, everybody today knows never to do this, but it's, here it is, and it's obnoxious. It says what? It says, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. Now, why would I say this is obnoxious? Well, come on, this is not the Bible. It's anything else you read today, and you establish a pecking order between two races, and one of them is the Jews, and the other is everybody else. And the Jews are up above you. You all with me? That's the essence of political incorrectness. Even the Jews, we should not think of them as superior to the rest of us. But this is what he says. He says the Jews first. And you know, you can't have anybody that's first without having somebody that's second. You can't be number one without being relegated. Now, who are these Jews who are first? Well, okay. You know, if you preach and you don't take any risks, you're not a good preacher. (laughs) Okay? So I'm going to take a risk here. Okay, I'm going to talk about the Jews. Everybody okay with this? I think the, one Jew we ha- the two Jews we have aren't here right now, right? Oh, Daniel's here? But you already came once. You were in the early service. Yeah, she, he came back because he loves me talking about the Jews. Okay, okay, I'm going to talk about the Jews. Now, the one lesson of political correctness is after the Holocaust, nobody's ever to say anything about the Jews except they love Israel and they think Israel should kill all the Palestinians, right? And anybody that doesn't think Israel should kill all the Palestinians, he's anti-Semitic. I mean, do I have that pretty straight? Okay. All right. Okay. Well, what are the Jews? Well, the Jews are really a pretty nasty race. First of all, they're proud. You ever known a Jew? And second of all, their mother's all guilt trip. The entire family, every family of a Jew lives in abject terror about the mother. Right? So there's this great joke, and jokes always tell the truth, and the joke is, how many Jewish mothers does it take to change a light bulb? None. I'll just sit here in the dark. Come on, people, laugh. It's all right. I'm the one that will get accused of being anti-Semitic, not you, all right? (laughs) I've never had a Jew not laugh at that one. (laughs) And then, think about them being the arbiters of culture. They get the Academy Awards. They run the banks. They were the Bolsheviks. It was Bernard Nathanson, by his own testimony in the pages of the New England Journal of Medicine, 
who said, I have come to believe that I have presided over the death of 70,000 human beings. Because he got abortion legalized, and then he started the largest abortion clinic in the world in New York City. He repented. Bernard Nathanson was a Jew. And so the Jews, whether you're talking about financial ability, you're talking about cultural ability, you're talking about writing ability, you're talking about raw intellectual ability, you're talking about pride, the Jews are a distinct race. And we should see what we see. And the Apostle Paul says that the gospel is the power of God to those who believe, and then he says, to the Jew, what? First, and also the Greek. All right. Now, why are the Jews special? Well, if you were a Jew, I think what you'd want to say is that you're special because your abilities are superior to everybody else's. And honestly, I'll cop to it. If I'm ever around a Jew, I will just assume they're smarter, more disciplined, brighter, more perceptive, more discerning than I am. I I just cop to it. It's true. The Jews I've known can whoop me. All right? There's no question. I mean, Daniel's not going to like me doing this. There's no question he can whoop me. And so why are the Jews special? Is it because of their intellectual ability? Is it because of their financial prowess? Is it because of their cultural uh, chops? In Deuteronomy 7, 6 to 8, God has brought the Israelites, the Jews, out of Pharaoh's oppression. They've been slaves there. And this is what God says to them as he brings them into the promised land. He says, for you a holy people, and we hear holy and we just think what? We just think uh, perfect or something. But the word holy means peculiar, <laughs> okay, unique, different, with a capital D. And so the, God is saying to his people, the Jews, for you are a peculiar people. You're set apart to me. You are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has what? Chosen you. That's the reason that the Jews are different. It's because God chose them. They're his chosen people. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Isn't that beautiful? Don't be jealous. It's beautiful that God chose the Jews. Now, what would they think about why they're chosen? Well, he goes on and says, The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the other peoples. And that more in number is a placeholder for every superiority that the Jews have demonstrated across history. You know, they say we're better bankers, we're better movie writers, we're better journalists, we're better academics, whatever they would say, we're better at. God says, I chose you precisely why. Not because you're smarter, not because there are more of you. And then he says this, the Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you're more in number than any of the peoples, for you were what? Do you remember what he says here? He says, for you were the fewest of people. 
Go to Ezekiel and read about God choosing the Jews. It's unbelievably humiliating. You were the fewest of all peoples, but because the Lord loved you. Okay? The Jews are different because God set his affection on them. That's it. And the reason God set his affection on them and not the Egyptians and not the Greeks was why? Well, every philosopher would think it was right for God to choose the Greeks. The Greeks have a lot to commend them. But God chose the Jews because they were so raunchy that they had to go out into Goshen in Egypt because nobody could stand to be around them. You remember that? Pharaoh sends them out because they were, they, were, they were shepherds. And so do not jump over this place where it says the Jews first and then the Greeks. Most of us here are Greeks, and it is good for us to be reminded that we are inferior, inferior to the Jews. Inferior. Do you hear that word? Relegated. Below. Underneath. Second. Okay? It's unbelievable in Scripture how Jesus absolutely won't let go of this one. And Jesus is a Jew. And it's so obnoxious that Jesus is just like so determined to put down people who aren't Jews. And you say, oh no, Jesus would never do that. And I say, you don't have the real Jesus. (laughs) You say, I can't think of any time when Jesus put anybody down. Jesus was just all about affirming people. I say, okay, listen to this. And mind you, it's a woman, okay? A Canaanite woman from that region came out and began to cry out, saying, now she's a Gentile, she's Canaanite, all right? She came out and she began to cry out, saying, have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. All right, that's a Jew. Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. Have mercy on me, Jew. My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. But Jesus did what? Well, Jesus was so into affirming people that he was tender with her, you know? He went over, oh, sweetie pie, <laughs> you know? <laughs> you know, you know, you know, like Absalom. If I were the king, I'd listen to you. And it says this, it says, but Jesus did not answer her a word. So you have this woman pleading for him to relieve her daughter of demon possession. She has admitted that he's a Jew, and she's not. She's a Canaanite woman, and Jesus did not answer her a word. And his disciples, well, they were deeply sensitive men. His disciples were the kind of men that just always had time for children and women, right? No. His disciples came and implored her, saying, Send her away! <laughs> because she keeps shouting at us. But he, Jesus, answered and said, what? How could you be so rude to this woman? Look at her needs. Aren't you sensitive? Don't you have compassion? No, that's not what Jesus said, actually. But Jesus said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. <laughs> okay, do you all feel it? This is the real Jesus. 
And he says, no, I, I'm not going to help her because I was sent to the Jews, the house of Israel. So if you were the woman, what would you have done? Be honest. What would you have done? I think many of us, you know, hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. And if that ain't scorning, I don't know what it is. And so you would marshal your dignity and stomp away? But by God's grace, this woman had a weakness, and that weakness was so tied to everything she was that she was willing to humble herself more. And it says, but she came and began to bow down before him, saying, Lord, help me. I love that she says, help me. This is motherhood. Help me. There's no break in the identity between a mother and her children. Help me. Now, at this point, you would think that Jesus would be compassionate, right? And he is, but his compassion looks nothing like what we say our compassion is. At that point, Jesus answered and said, it's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. (laughs) You guys, you should be laughing. The tension. Think of the tension. It's awful. It's like, Put yourself in the shoes of everyone watching what's going down. Jesus is, you know, the old song of the stones, you know, under my thumb. And so what does the woman do at this point? Well, I think this is the most Jewish statement ever made in Scripture, other than maybe one in Philemon. It's perfect chutzpah. Because what she says to Jesus is, yes, Lord, but even the dogs feed on the crumbs which fall from the master's table. (laughs) And listen, this is femininity. This is femininity. It doesn't come after men with a gun or a club or rhetoric. It just says, yeah, but even the dogs. And then what happens? Then Jesus said to her, O woman, your faith is great. It shall be done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed at once. Do you know that when Jesus gave the second half of the Great Commission, he said to his disciples right after he was resurrected and then ascended, he said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. And that order matters. And that's why the Apostle Paul said to the Jews first. And then he says, for in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Remember how I said that the, that the gospel is a scandal to us? That it really, we chafe under it, it grates on us. And remember why I said, I said because it's not us, it's God. 
Do you know what it says in Scripture? It says, so here we see that this gospel, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. Now, whose righteousness is it? I know you don't like to answer obvious questions, but whose righteousness is it? And whose righteousness would you like it to be? Come on. Why do we want it to be our righteousness? Why? Pride, yes. It, it, you know, there's something deep inside of us that does not want to be dependent on God. Have you ever seen that in yourself? You know, I have certain things that have happened in my life that make me realize I do not want to depend on God. One of them was when my wife and I needed money when we were in the ministry at the very beginning. And I was so angry because I would never talk to the, to, to, to the elders or anybody about money, but I was so angry at, 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 at their treatment of us. And I did not want to pray. I did not want to pray. And why wouldn't I want to pray? Well, if you pray, then God's the one that did it. And I was in this moral trip of trying to compare myself and my goodness to my congregation and their goodness. I was trying to compare my affection for them to their affection for me. And I was finding that their affection was not what I felt I should have. You know? And so it's about me and them. And if I pray, it's about me and God. And I really don't want things to be about me and God. Because I'm proud. Because I don't want to be dependent. And yet it says here that the gospel is God's righteousness. And so here's the question. Whose righteousness do you depend on? Whose? I mean, honestly. You know, do you count off each day? Have you read your Bible? Have you prayed? Have you not had anything to drink? Have you, you know, not been unkind to your wife? Have you submitted to your husband? Have you made the bed? Well, I mean, isn't that the trivial level that we do judge our own morality on? Enough! You can't ever put yourself in a place that God is beholden to you. You can't do it. God is never going to give anything to the man who thinks he has something to give God. He won't do it. And why? Because that little bit that you think you can give God is the one place where he loses his glory. And God is jealous for his own glory. God wants you to be a testimony to his power, not to yours. Do you understand that? It's simple. It's not complicated. And it's true for the young and old, men, women. There's no distinction, any of us, on this thing. The minute we think that we have something to present to God, we can have the most sophisticated way of describing it. We can have ultra-spiritual. We can think we're so holy and pious while we make these explanations. But the minute we think we have anything to give to God, we're foolish and there's no hope for us. We can't. And so it is the righteousness of God. And the righteousness of God to all who believe. Okay, the salvation of God to all who believe. When we cast ourselves on God, we then have, in his power, he gives us the righteousness of this son. 
And this was the one that when John the Baptist saw him for the first time, John the Baptist said what? John the Baptist said, Behold, the Lamb of God who taketh away the sins of the world. Listen, we're going on in Romans, and I want you to know that the whole book of Romans, over and over and over and over and over again, will hammer it into our heads. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. That's the book of Romans. And the Apostle Paul knows how squirrely we are. He knows every chance we get. Martin Luther said he had to go through Galatians two or three times because he kept having to learn it again that the righteousness is God's. The righteous man shall live by faith. And it is all of faith. None of it is works, none of it is of man, none of it is of me, and none of it is of you. It is all of Jesus Christ. The prophet Habakkuk had written this in the Old Testament. The apostle Paul writes it in the New Testament, quoting the prophet Habakkuk. The righteous shall live by faith. And so do you have faith, and do you have true living faith? Do you have faith, and do you have true living faith? You. You. Do you? Do you have faith in God's righteousness, not your own? In God's righteousness, hanging on the cross outside the city walls at the crossroad, bleeding and naked, on full display as he was ridiculed and mocked and scorned. And it was his own people who were howling for his blood. His own people, the Jews. We read in Matthew 27, when Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing, but rather that a riot was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it, See to that yourselves. And all the people, and who were the people? It was the Jews. And all the Jews said, his blood shall be on us and on our children. And the gospel is the power of God to those people first. Oh, my. What a relief. So do you live by faith in his blood, in Jesus' precious blood? Let us pray.